Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 141 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Michael Shermer, editor of Skeptic Magazine. He's also written over a dozen nonfiction books, including Why People Believe Weird Things, Why Darwin Matters, and The Mind of the Market. His latest book is called The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom. And now, here's our interview with Michael Shermer. All right, so we're here with Michael Shermer. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called The Moral Arc. So what's that about? (laughs) Well, um, so the subtitle uh, pretty much explains the thesis, which is that how science and reason lead humanity toward truth, justice, and freedom. So I'm basically emphasizing the role of uh, the scientific revolution and the subsequent age of reason and the Enlightenment as major drivers of moral progress over the past three centuries. That is to say, the, the great scientific revolutionaries like Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo and Newton basically all um, discovered that the universe is governed by natural laws that can be understood and applied to uh, social problems, political problems, economic problems, moral issues. Um, and and that's what we've been doing ever since. So uh, I, I think, you know, amongst the many different factors, even though some of them are political or economic or, or whatever that have changed society for the better, underlying those is this assumption that the world is knowable. We can we can actually understand why problems exist as they do, what the causes are, and then what we can do to affect change uh, of those causes. Well, yeah, and I think the first objection some people would have to your thesis is they're going to say, well, no, but religion is where we get all our moral values from. You can't discount the role that religion has played in advancing moral progress. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, that's right. Most people do make that assumption for the simple reason that religion has always been associated with moral values. Plus, um, there's this, what I consider to be a fallacy, the so-called is-ought fallacy, which I think that fallacy is itself a fallacy. Uh, That is, the way something is can tell us nothing about the way it ought to be, uh, which I think is just absurd. I mean, you know, the way something is very much determines uh, our understanding of it in order to to change it, to make it the way we think it ought to be. Um, And uh, so I think in both camps, I find that my critics tend to agree with religionists in this case that you know, that we can't get our moral values from science and reason. Okay, well, then where do you get them? Uh, well, of course, religious people say they get them from the holy book, or, you know, from the Bible or the Quran or or whatever. Um, of course, non-religious people don't say that. But uh, but but then where do they get them? And, uh, and, and they'll say something like, well, from culture, you know, it's, it's all kind of Western bias, you know, it's morally uh, relative, you know, different cultures have different belief systems, you know, well, that's true, but, but something real fundamental, like um, the fact that we've been employing public health measures for over a century now, really two centuries, to try to make the world a safer and healthier place, like sewers, flush toilets, vaccinations, you know, all these public health measures to clean up the air, clean up the water. Oh, point of that is to make the survival and flourishing of of the people living in the society 
more likely, more, more, you know, improved. And uh, would anybody seriously argue that that's a Western bias, that there are places in the world where, where the average citizens like living in filth and, and disease and, and like to suffer and die? I, I don't think so. Right. And I mean, when you talk about the clean places, the places with good health and happy people and education, and all these things, they tend to be actually the least religious societies, right? Yeah, I, I cite quite a bit of data and show graphs in that chapter uh, showing that um, if you take like various measures of societal health, um, rates of homicide, rates of suicide, teen pregnancy, abortion rates, you know, and so forth, and you look at the top 20 uh, Western democracies and you measure their different rates of or levels of religiosity, it turns out that America is the most religious nation of the 20 industrial westernized democracies. And yet we, we have the worst rates of those societal health measures. We have the highest rates of teen pregnancy, highest rates of abortion, highest rates of STDs and, and so forth, and highest rates of homicide by far. Now, each of those has a different particular cause, but my point is that if religion is such a great prophylactic against sin and crime and, and problems in society, how come we're the worst amongst all the, the Western democracies and we're the most religious? You know, why is that? I, 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 I've not yet received a good answer to that. Hmm. Well, well, right. And you also make the point, I mean, if you actually look at the texts of some of these religious documents, uh, I mean, they're just full of ghastly things. Uh, just to take one example, you mentioned that the Bible says that if a woman is not a virgin on her wedding night, she should be beaten to death with rocks and her body should be dumped outside her dad's front door. Yeah. Um <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Uh, I mean, when you, I mean, given how ghastly that is, and, and, and also just given how clear the um, sociological data you just mentioned seems to be, why do you think it's so hard to convince people otherwise? Uh, well, you know, belief systems are very powerful and, and, and ingrained in people's worldviews. I mean, a worldview is very hard to change. And the older you are, the, the harder it is to change. It's why, for example, I just tweeted at Michael Shermer on my Twitter that um, you know, the, the same-sex marriage revolution is primarily being led by the youth, and, and this new data just published this week from Pew uh, shows that even among Republicans, uh, the millennials, those born after 1981, are three times more likely to support same-sex marriage, it, it, and a majority, by the way, of Republicans, than the silent generation, those born after 1928, are likely to support it. Uh, so even amongst conservatives who would generally be against, have been against same-sex marriage, uh, the youth have uh, are, are more likely to change. So the younger you are, the more likely willing you are to change your worldview if you, uh, you know, see see new evidence to change your mind, or just your cohort, your friends, your colleagues, your the people you hang out with. If they all change, or pop culture around you, the television shows, the music. Uh, blogs and podcasts and all that, you're just exposed to all these things, you're more likely to change your mind if you're younger. So the, the, the sooner, earlier we can get to people with these ideas, you know, the better off we'll be. Well, right. And young people, too, in addition to being more progressive on issues like gay rights, are also less religious. I think under people who are under 30 or something like one out of three or have no particular religious affiliation. Yeah, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Yeah, hmm. they're very powerful cohorts, fastest growing religious group in America. Uh, now, I, I don't, I'm not sure we can extend the, the curve out and say it'll be 100% in 50 years or whatever. Uh, but the idea is that um, that we, 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 we non-believers, non-churched or, or whatever, um, 
are, are gaining a stronger political voice, and we should be heard, uh, and not just by liberal, you know, Democrats, but by, by everybody. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think that's that's a growing force to come. Right, and I mean, given that this is a show for science fiction fans, we are kind of curious to look as far into the future as we can. And so, I mean, why do you say? Why do you think that that trend won't continue to a hundred percent? Like, where do you think it'll top out, and why? Um, well, of course, I don't know. Nobody does, but I, I think religion is very powerful force on many levels that that operates uh, to great effect for many people. That it's going to take a long time before it it really becomes a, a non-important force in society. Um, I mean, my atheist friends, they all think, you know, it's it's just around the corner, <laughs> you know, and that we'll see the demise of, you know, religion will fall into disuse. It'll be, I'm not that optimistic about that. Um, I think maybe a century or two, which, you know, for, in terms of science fiction, that's nothing. You know, if we take the long view, you know, the, the, the millennial view, thousands and thousands of years, you know, it could be that religion, say, in a 100,000-year in a period of time, religion will have had its say from, uh, let's say, 10,000 B.C., or maybe make it 8,000 B.C. to 3,000 A.D., uh, so 11,000 years, and, and that's it. The other 89,000 years will be spent without religion as a powerful force. So in that case, you know, in that sense, you know, it's entirely possible that it'll just be a minor blip in history, just an interesting little side trip that we don't need anymore. Now, one of the ideas I found so interesting in this book, and this is something I've believed for a long time, is I felt that most moral failures are actually failures of imagination. It's the failure to imagine what it's like to be somebody else or how society could be different or how the world might be different than you imagine it to be. And you have this really interesting discussion of that in this book where you talk about James Flynn um, of the Flynn effect and how he tried to convince his dad not to be racist by making the argument, well, what if you woke up one morning and discovered that your skin had turned black? Would that make you any less of a human being? And I think this is so interesting because to me, this seems like a science fiction idea, right? Uh, that you, you wake up and you're a different race one morning. And that kind of uh, hypothetical could lead you to some uh, moral insight. Yeah, exactly. And and that, that's one of the driving forces, I think, behind the so-called moral Flynn effect, uh, that um, literature, reading, imagining yourself being someplace else or somebody else, and that, that actually, there's some evidence that that actually rewires your brain. It, it makes you think about the world in a different way. I cite some brand new studies um, in that chapter uh, that were just conducted last year on um, the relationship between literacy and and abstract reasoning and moral reasoning um and specifically uh, people that read high literature a little more complex literature like jane austen novels versus say people magazine versus not not reading at all um on their ability to read other people's uh, emotional expressions on their face and to do something that's called mind reading that is imagine what somebody's thinking based on where they're looking, what their emotional expressions are on their face, that sort of thing. And that people that read a lot, especially good quality literature, seem to be better at this. And and the argument goes that, you know, when you read a novel, uh, you're looking at the world through the eyes of some other character. And that rewires your brain, trains your brain to think, like, yeah, what would it be like to be somebody else or someplace else or some other completely different culture? And, of course, that's what science fiction does. 
you know, pretty much every novel is, you know, transporting you to another world. Um, and uh, so I, I think all of that adds up in addition to all these political economic factors to making this more moral. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you mentioned a number of works of science fiction in this book. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, would you say that you're a big science fiction fan o- overall? Um, I'm a, I, I would, I would say I'm a moderate science fiction fan. I, I would love to be a big science fiction mm-hmm. fan. I just have very little time to read science fiction because my job is to read nonfiction for Skeptic Magazine, for Scientific American, for you know, review. I get, you know, I review books all the time. Uh, and so I'm so exhausted reading all day nonfiction. I don't have much time. To, but what I do read in films that I watch and so on, I, you know, I love science fiction. My, you know, my favorite all time film is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, you know, most people don't realize that it's a Christ allegory, you know, that, that, you know, Klaatu comes down to earth and, and his name on earth is Mr. Carpenter, in case you don't get the, <laughs> the log there, you know, and he, and he, he delivers this war. He wants to deliver this warning of, you know, that we're, we have a sinful nature, you know, like, like original sin and we have to repent or else. Uh, and, uh, but, but he, he's not allowed to see the authority. So he mingles among the common people like Jesus did. And then, you know, the character, Klaatu character, Michael Rennie, you know, kind of hooks up with this woman, the Patricia Neal character, who's kind of Mary Magdalene, like, you know, they, you know, they don't quite have a relationship in the film, or maybe they do, who knows? Um, in any case, then, um, you know, the authorities, you know, like the Romans, the authorities, the government tracks him down and kills him. And he's put in this tomb in the movie, it's a jail cell or morgue or something like that. And then, you know, Gort, the robot has to go get him. And the Patricia Neal character gives the, you know, famous, you know, um, little line about, you know, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, you know, go, go get him and resurrect him. So, you know, Gort the robot goes and gets him out of the tomb. So it's an empty tomb and then takes him back to the spaceship and resurrects him. And, um, you know, and, and in the original script, the Patricia Neal character sitting there watching this with her mouth open is like, whoa, that's amazing. He's alive again. He was dead. You know I mean? This is the power that you have science and technology in the future has. And, and in the original script, he says, yeah, <laughs> but in the in the film, you'll see he says, uh, "No, no, uh, you know, nobody has that kind of power. It's reserved for the great spirit in the sky, or some such <laughs> thing." And the reason for that is because the Breen censorship board in 1951 said, "You can't say that to Amer- American uh, film viewers; they'll freak out." Uh, you know, because of, uh, we're so, such a religious nation. And uh, uh, but I like that film because it, you know, it touches on you know a lot of the issues. At the time, Cold War and the remake with Keanu Reeves, it was global warming. But, you know, one reason I like science fiction is it allows us to deal with current problems in a way and get away with things that you wouldn't get away with if you were writing nonfiction, which, of course, is what Gene Roddenberry did in every episode of Star Trek since we're talking on the day after Leonard Nimoy died. Um, you know, that you know that whole the, that scene with, uh, you know, the episode where, where the two characters each had black and white faces, but... The one had his black face on the left and the other was the black face on the right. And they were arguing about who who was the truly superior race. You know, I mean, it was such a great commentary because it's so absurd when you see it in a, you know, a slightly different take in a different uh, location in in space and time, you know, at how absurd a lot of our own prejudices are. And I think that's one of the things that science fiction lets us do. Well, yeah, and speaking of Leonard Nimoy, I mean, he played this character Spock, who was this embodiment of rationalism in a way. Uh, I mean, did you do you see Spock as a as a role model, or do you think he was a positive force in popular culture? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, you can see that in the outpouring of you know people that you know feel sad. You know, it's it's kind of a weird thing that that you'd feel sad about 
a character dying, <laughs> you know, since Leonard Nimoy is presumably not Spock. Even <laughs> well, it depends on which of his books you. He wasn't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think uh, the idea is that um, uh, w- what he stands for, the character stands for, embodies. In this case, you know, Roddenberry was a humanist. He was, well, I don't think he called himself an atheist. I think he said he was an agnostic. You know, the, they use those terms slightly differently back then. Um, and, uh, and, but, but, but he was a humanist. He believed that, you know, we get our morals from reason. We, we reason our way. And, and, and from that, you can expand the moral sphere, which he did in his, uh, you know, his, his vehicle there, the magnificent Starship Enterprise, you know, in centuries hence. Uh, and, and, and you're allowed to get away with a lot more when it's science fiction and it's set in the future. I mean, if his science fiction was like X-Files, which is in the, you know, historical present, uh, there's a lot less you can do in terms of the viewing audience, censors or whatever, the network executives. Uh, if you just say, oh, no, I'm not talking about now. This is I'm not talking about the Vietnam War. No, no, I'm talking about this war three centuries from now. Oh, OK. In that, that case, say whatever you want. Ha ha. <laughs> you know, it's in other words, it's a way of sneaking past the the, uh, you know, the censors and the executives, the message you really want to deliver. But nevertheless, the, the message is delivered and the public gets it, even if it's on a subconscious level. And that affects social change. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you, you say in the book, too, that you actually own a sculpture that appeared on an episode of the original Star Trek. I do. Yes, that was by my aunt, Frankie. Uh, Frank Epping was her name. I write about that in the book that she um, her name is Dorothy. And uh, she was adopted uh, from my grandmother and raised by an, another man who was in the film industry. And he sent her off to Europe to be trained as an artist. And she went to the um, Vienna School of Fine Arts and and got her training there and came back. And she did this famous sculpture, this man with a hat. And he's got his two hands up on top of his head. And that sits in my uh, house, uh, right? I can see it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, but she had to change her. The point of that story was she had to change her name to Frank. We just call her Anne Frankie uh, because there were no women sculptures back sculptors back in the 1930s. And, you know, her she had a hard time getting taken seriously as a Dorothy. So she just said, OK, my name is Frank. Oh, OK. In that case, we'll take you serious you know, until they find out she's a woman. It's like, oh, but too late. She's already <laughs> she's already in the club. Uh, and, you know, that's a kind of a sad commentary. But on the other hand, um, look how far we've come. Yeah, and I mean, and so that's all the the social change you talk about in the book, and in quite a bit of detail. And you also go into some political changes that we might see in the future. And this idea was really fascinating to me. I, I don't know that I'd ever heard this before, but you you think that the city state uh, as a political entity might make a comeback in the next century or two? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think uh, your audience, uh, science fiction people and geeks, so to speak, I guess I'm one of those, uh, will like the last chapter of the Moral Arc best, which I call Protopia. Uh, this is Kevin Kelly, you know, the founder of Wired Magazine. Uh, you know, his term, protopia, means, you know, gradual progress, not utopia. There's no there's no perfect society we're ever going to get to, so quit trying to get there. And dystopia is too negative. You know, it's it's not real. Neither one of those is realistic. Protopia, let's just try to make tomorrow slightly better than today. And that's what we've been doing, you know, slowly but surely. And so if you look at, um, you know, I allowed myself some room for speculation in that last chapter. You know, why should we be committed to the nation state forever you know the nation state is constantly evolving concept uh you know is it a geography is it a race is it a language what is it you know and it's an ever-shifting definition but if you look at the the, the big picture europe used to be populated by over five thousand different political units which then slowly got 
uh, coalesced into about 50 different political units. And so back, you know, a few decades ago, you know, the sort of one world governmenters were projecting, well, maybe, you know, it'll just keep going down from 50 down to eventually we'll just have one world government. Well, that didn't happen. And I don't think it will happen for what I call the fixing the potholes problem. That is, uh, you know, somebody that that governs from 10,000 miles away is not going to care about the potholes down the street from my house. So probably more local, solving local problems with local government. And uh, so, and this isn't my idea, that the whole mayors will rule the world idea that's popularized in a couple of books in the last two years and uh, and popularized on um, uh, the Long Now Foundation's website. Um you know, Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly talk about this, that, you know, mayors uh, are, are probably going to be the most influential politicians in the sense that, you know, they're actively out there solving immediate social problems that the people in that community need. And I'm not sure the nation state is really the best unit, political unit we have for solving problems, for making my life and your life, wherever you happen to live, better. I think if we think centuries hence, there's no reason to think that the nation state is going to is going to be this permanent uh, thing because it's never been permanent anyway. Yeah, yeah. And you also you you mentioned this really interesting idea that uh, given how technology is liberating us from geography in a lot of ways, that we might just have countries that exist only in the cloud that are completely untethered from geography altogether. Yeah, well, we're already kind of doing that. You know, there's their communities or you know, like Facebook meetup groups, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it could be more of that. I mean, there'll always, always be geography because you have to have a place to, to to plant your feet and walk around and 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 sleep and eat and so on. But but those will become more flexible, and you know that that the shifting around from one group to another group, depending on your interests and your work and and so on, I think that'll become more fluid and flexible. Um, you know, but but it's always good to to remind people, which I do in the book by quoting Kevin Kelly, who. You know, he, he talks about in, uh, in the early 90s when he was at Wired Magazine and they were projecting the future of the Internet, you know, like 10 years hence, which we've since come, which we've since seen and how wrong they were. I mean, even just like in the early 90s, projecting what the Internet will be like in the early 2000s. And here we are in 2015 and they weren't even remotely accurate. So, you know, what's going to be like in 2050? I have no idea, you know, but all we could do is kind of project forward and, and, uh, you know, we'll see. All I can say is that it's, you know, the trends are fairly positive that it will be a more moral place, a safer place, a more prosperous place to live. Yeah, I mean, could you say a bit more about how in what way were they so wrong? Uh, well, well, Kevin makes the point that uh, if you would have said to to Internet specialists and leaders in the early 1990s, one day almost everything on the Internet is going to be free or so cheap, almost too cheap to meter. Uh, and they would have said, well, that's not possible. There has to be an economic model. There has to be a profit motive. How can you possibly make money and support a company uh, when everything's free? And in fact, most of the stuff on the internet is free now. And yet there's still ways to structure it in a way to, to, to support your company or organization uh, through advertising and you know click-through and, and, and that sort of thing. And that that would have been hard to predict. So who knows? That's that uh, that sort of abundance model that people like uh, Peter Diamandis talk about. You know, the X Prize uh, founder uh, about prosperity. Bold is his new book, and abundance is his previous book. You know, I find those very uplifting. I mean, a lot of people are very are very critical of those books and that whole worldview because it it feels like it's leaving the little guy behind and 
oh yeah, rich old white guys can talk about how, you know they go to conferences like TED and talk about you know how great the future is going to be. Meanwhile, there's people starving in Africa. Yes, I know, but you know the Gates Foundation has just projected that poverty will be over in Africa in in 15 years. Their their projections for 2030 are that there'll be no more poverty as defined by the UN making $2.50 or less a day that that'll be over uh so it's not just let's make the rich people uber rich and and the world would be great no let's bring everybody up and that that's where i think we're heading well yeah i mean this this book is very optimistic about you know if the current trends continue there'll be a lot more prosperity and equality and so on um but you also, I mean, you, you mentioned passing things like global warming and, and ways in which the world is getting worse. Like, where do you see, how do you see those two trends intersecting and how how confident can we be that the positive trends will continue and they won't be sort of swamped by ecological collapse or things along those lines? Uh-huh. Yep. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I do think global warming is real and primarily human caused. I don't doubt that. However, I am not as confident as the... Um, the what I call the climb apocalypse people that you know that 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 it's going to be apocalyptic. It's going to you know just bring about utter ruin and and climate change is an existential threat to civilization. I I don't think so. Um, you know the, the the doomsayers have been wrong in the past. You know just embarrassingly wrong in terms of projections about overpopulation leading to you know billions of people starving to death and and uh, you know all those projections that. Um, uh, Paul Ehrlich made in the 60s and 70s with the population bomb. Uh, they just didn't come true, and now that doesn't mean they won't. I just don't think it, it's is as likely as the doomsayers say. Now, my long-term projections in the final chapter of the moral arc is that um, if we can educate everybody and make birth control accessible, cheap or free, <laughs> um, populations will naturally decline, especially if you educate women. Because women are primarily in control of family size, more than men. And so if you can educate women and make uh, birth control accessible, what happens is that family size naturally goes down. And this will happen in Africa, too. Now, this is going to take a while because of the momentum. So we're going to still be climbing through 2050 to a peak of probably 9 or 10 billion. But I'm projecting that by 2200, we'll be back down to 1 or 2 billion and by then, the technologies will be such that we can easily sustain one to two billion people with renewable farming and renewable energy sources. And, and that could be a indefinite civilization could exist indefinitely at this super higher quality of standard of living at a sustainable, um, you know, renewable sources of energy and food. Um, and, and so th that's where I think optimistically we're, we're going to get to. And, and, and I don't think, you know, the whole thing is going to collapse at 2100 preventing us from getting to 2200 in that more optimistic worldview. I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, I see people like Elon Musk, who is the sort of the Steve Jobs of our generation now, changing the world. And we just, let's find technological solutions now, immediately. Let's go and do it in a way that people can make a profit doing it. Why not? Well, yeah, and you mentioned farming and food, and that's another big part of this book is animal rights and how we treat animals. Um, I guess that the thing that really struck me in that section, being a science fiction person, is you mentioned in passing the possibility of biofabricating meat. And I think that's so interesting. And, and that seems to me, I mean, you say it would be so hard to get people to stop eating meat, but maybe if we're just able to print meat out on a 3D printer and we don't have to kill animals to get it, that might uh, obviate the problem. 
that's one of the Google X projects, uh, I believe, is the you know, uh, synthetic meat. They're not there yet. Um, you know, there's, boy, there's nothing tastier than a good steak. But, um, you know, when you look at the treatment of farm animals, factory farms in particular, it's, it's pretty gruesome. I think that really, that does have to come to a stop. It, it, it really is not the proper treatment of sentient beings as I've defined it. Um, but on the other hand, I think it, to be realistic, somebody like Temple Grandin's work to make the farming process more humane, you know, but, you know, less suffering for these sentient beings, uh, you know, that's kind of where we are now. It's just it's trying to make, make the, their lives better. I do um, I do praise these poly farms, what I call happy farms, <laughs> where the animals run around and you know, sort of it's mildly free, and they can kind of live out their physiological destiny until it's you know time till their last day. Uh, you know that's maybe not as ideal as animal rights activists would like it, but I think realistically that's the best we can hope for at the moment. Um, in the long run, yes, centuries hence, it's entirely possible. Why not synthetic meat? And, and so we don't have to bring those animals into existence in the first place in order to kill them. Um, you know, that, that would be better for sure. Uh, and then you mentioned in the book, you say that in the Indian Constitution that they made dolphins. They said that dolphins should be considered non-human persons in the Wildlife Protection Act of 1972. Uh, I was sort of struck that 1972 was the example. Have there been any um, developments on that front since then? Um, well, the, the attempts at uh, the legal attempts at animal rights activism by people like uh, Stephen Wise, who's a, an attorney, is, they, they, they use that personhood model as a way of uh, changing the law. It's not that anybody thinks animals are persons in the sense that you know dolphins should vote or chimpanzees <laughs> should you know have the right to an education or anything. Like that. It, it's just, uh, and it goes back to Jeremy Bentham's original argument. It's not can they reason or can they talk, can they suffer? It's the suffering of sentient beings that we should be concerned about at the very basic level of our moral consideration. And you know, that's where Peter Singer begins, uh, you know, with his arguments. And, and I think, um, you know, that, that's where we have to start and build from there. Uh, and the personhood argument, uh, you know, that, that's really been, been taking off. So chimpanzees now have been... Um, all they're all being retired now from research. Um, the, you know, the National Science Foundation just said that's it, no more. And going forward, no more use of chimps. Uh, when when you're done with your current research, you, you have to retire them, send them off to these little chimp uh, retirement communities, uh, which is kind of cool. And because uh, you know, the, we all have a sense of the evolutionary continuity between ourselves and these other sentient beings. Great apes, the cetaceans, whales and dolphins and porpoises, you know, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans. And, and then you start working your way down the phylogenetic tree. You know, cows don't seem, you know, quite, we're not quite as sympathetic as we are, say, with chimpanzees. But certainly they can suffer and, uh, and feel anxious about being killed. And the factory farming process is, is pretty gruesome. When I was working on that chapter on animal rights, oh, I watched all those hidden camera documentaries and it was terrible i just had a hard time watching them it's if you've ever tried to do it it's brutal yeah yeah okay so the sort of the 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 overarching theme of this book is that people have been getting more and more moral over time Uh, but you also warn a lot about the dangers of misguided utopian projects of thinking that people can be just sort of made into whatever we want them to be um sort of how where do you imagine that going in terms of how where will people's moral development top out and uh you know what sort of what's the best we can hope for in terms of making people more moral 
Yeah, so I'm arguing that we have, you know, constitutions of society should be based on the constitution of human nature. That is, we have a constitution. We have a human nature. We, you know, we are a certain way. There's only so much you can tweak the the, the genome, so to speak, or, or change it through environment. Uh, but on the other hand, even if 50% of our behaviors and and personality and so on is is heritable, uh, first of all, heritability doesn't mean you know fixed and, and non-changeable. But that still leaves because it is. And, and on top of that, you have another 50% that can be uh, influenced by the environment, by changing environment. So I'm pretty optimistic that way. Uh, how far can we go? Who knows? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, th- I think it's possible to get to a point where there's no more major interstate conflicts. I mean, look what's happened in Europe. For 500 years, the great powers of Europe were at war with each other almost every year. Um, and that all came to a stop. In 1945, it ended. And the great powers have not fought one another since then. Agreed, there's proxy wars like... Korea and Vietnam and, you know, supporting third world dictators in South America. I I know that still goes on, but not as much as it did in the 70s now. Uh, But, you know, what are the chances of France and Germany going to war again? Or imagine French marching their troops through the channel into England and marching on London to conquer it. I mean, it just almost seems laughable at this point. But you know, uh, three quarters of a century ago or two centuries ago, it wasn't laughable at all. It was it was happening. And so that that's I'm optimistic about that. It's possible to get the whole world to that point. There could still be for a while civil wars, interstate uh, inner tribal conflicts, inner group conflicts, um, particularly if, if we go back to city states and smaller political units. You're going to have conflicts over resources and things like that or just or just some old religious or um, you know racial type conflicts, but but even those are are getting less likely. The you know ISIS is you know really stands out as very uh, old school barbaric compared to the way most religions are have adopted the Enlightenment principles of expanding the moral sphere to include people that are not like you. Most Christians don't do that sort of thing, although you know centuries ago Christians beheaded people, they burned people alive. You know, we're, we're, we're horrified by ISIS beheading journalists and, and, and burning that Jordanian pilot alive. But, you know, the Christians used to burn women as witches alive, a lot, thousands of them, tens of thousands probably. And they don't do that anymore. So if we, if, if we can make that change, there's no reason we can't continue on to, to affect change like that everywhere. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting in this book, you kind of rule out the possibility of genetically engineering people to make them less greedy or violent or or things like that. And I'm, I'm sort of wondering, do you think there's no chance that might happen? I mean, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about how men have this um, biological propensity toward violence. And I wonder, is there no reason to genetically engineer men to give them a larger prefrontal cortex so that they have better impulse control and become less violent? Well, yeah, that might be a possibility. Uh, allow the the testosterone fuel competitiveness because that's that's a good drive for creativity, for you know improving uh, you know performance on you know on any task. Uh, it's good to have that. Um, but on the other hand, you know how to control the uh, the bubbling up impulses from beneath that are a little on the negative side. Um, I think probably instead of genetic engineering, just more transparency and better rules to incentivize people to act more humanely and less violently, which is what we've already been doing. I mean, the whole point of structuring 
a government, you know, government in this sense is a social tool, a technology to affect change in the in behavior of individuals, to get them to quit committing violence, for example, to get homicide rates to go down dramatically. Um, you know, I think it's probably more realistic to change laws than change genes. And uh, it always makes me nervous about, you know, genetically engineering some behavior. First of all, it smacks of eugenics, but also you don't know the unintended consequences, you know, because of pleiotropy. That is, genes are, are often linked to one another on the same chromosome. So if you select or engineer one particular gene, you might accidentally, inadvertently uh, select for some other genes that you don't want. Or it's just it's hard to anticipate. Uh, so I'd be I'd, uh, it's easy to change laws back if you try it and it doesn't go well. It may, it may be harder to change genes. Although that does bring up, there's this quote you have from James Madison in the Federalist Paper number 51, where he said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. That just makes me wonder if we were to make people who are just much, much more moral than the people we have now, would that obviate the need for government? Is there sort of this inverse correlation between the amount of government you need versus how moral people are? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think that's possible to genetically engineer people to become angels or even structure society that would make that possible. I think the best we can hope for is to optimize um, the you know the incentives to get people to act more morally. But there's always going to be some guy that gets pissed off about his car getting scratched and he goes berserk. I mean, that's just it, it, that's going to be hard to get rid of that. There's always going to be enough to fill the headlines um, going forward. You know, it, I think it's unrealistic to shoot for zero, say zero violence uh, as a goal. And we're not going to be happy till we reach there. I, th I think that's not realistic. I think let's just try to optimize things. Just try to make it a little bit better. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem with the idea of utopias is they, they often fail because of an unrealistic theory of human nature, or they try to do that kind of engineering, either eugenically or through society, and they also fail because they're too extreme. Um, they, they either move too fast or they, they have unrealistic goals and they fail. And, and unfortunately, sadly, tragically, they often fail with a high body count. And, and so I, I really, given history, I'd rather avoid that. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, at the very end of the book, you mentioned something that's obviously of interest to science fiction fans, which is the possibility of super advanced alien civilizations. Um, one thing you talk about is you say any advanced civilization that survives long enough for us to make contact with it will also be a morally advanced civilization. Um, I don't know. Could you talk about that idea? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I'm. I disagree with people like Stephen Hawking and. Elon Musk and others that have commented on artificial intelligence and or extraterrestrials being um, evil, being colonialists, being, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, a guy's way of looking at the worst parts of history and projecting forward. Uh, you know, hockey makes this point, well, you know, how, how, how do the Native Americans feel about, you know, the advanced extraterrestrials coming from Europe, so to speak, I guess it'd be extracontinental uh, intelligence is coming from Europe. Not so good. Yeah, but th that was a different time in history. I don't think a colonial empire kind of society could sustain a long term, by which I mean thousands of years or tens of thousands of years, you know, space exploration program. And uh, you know, and I don't think you could sustain such a program by, by simply um, colonizing other planets. It, it just seems to me unrealistic. It seems to me that 
to get to that point, you would have had to solve a lot of these social problems that we're currently facing and, and are now solving to get there. And so look how far we've come in just, say, two centuries in terms of rights for more people in more places and the decline of violence and so on. Just project that out you know, another 200 years or 200,000 years into the future. You can only imagine how much better it could be. And I think it's that, that scenario is much more likely than the reverse, that we go backwards, that you know, we reinstate slavery, we take the vote away from women, um, you know, that it's, it's very unlikely that we would do that. I mean, do you think that it's prudent to be beaming signals out into space in an attempt to contact aliens, or do you think that that's risky? Oh, no, I, I'm not worried about it at all. I, you know, first of all, the chances of anybody picking it up are, are pretty remote. And it's more of an exercise in getting us, our own species, to think about what that would mean and to think about our long-term future. Uh, that's why I like the Long Now Foundation, you know, Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly's organization where they're building that 10,000-year clock. It's just a way of reconfiguring, which science fiction does, to get back to where we started, reconfiguring the way we think about things. Let's think about the long-term, you know, thousands of years from now rather than, you know, weeks from now or months from now. It, it just kind of gets you to think about the bigger picture, which I think is a healthy thing to do. And in that sense... You know, I, I think, you know, sending the signals out is really more for ourselves. You know, like the Voyager record, what should we put on there? What music, you know, what pictures, what images? Really, the chances of aliens finding that little spacecraft are pretty slim, about as close to zero as you can get. So it's really more for our own self uh, to think, well, wh who are we anyway? What what would you select to represent us? You know, it's more of a exercise for ourselves. All right. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. Uh, do you have any just final comments you want to make? Any other projects you're working on that you want people to know about? The, the Moral Arc definitely is my magnum opus, as it were, the biggest thing I've done. So I, what I'd really like to do is bring it to film uh, as a documentary film or a television series, like six-part special, something like that. I mean, let's face it, if you want to change the world, you, you really need to use the visual medium. Uh, books are great, but and I love books. I'm a huge reader, but um, you know you have to you have to be on TV. You got to be on film. You got to have you have your ideas visually to really reach a lot of people in our culture. So that's my next project is to bring that to television. Um, we have a web page where you can read about all these these ideas. Moralarc.org uh, is the place to go. But, you know, anyway, the, yeah, the book's in bookstores, Amazon, and all that. So give it a read, and uh, let me know what you think. All right, great. Yeah, and so that book, again, it's called The Moral Arc, and the author is Michael Shermer. And so, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Michael Shermer for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Ismail Schonhorst from Brazil, who writes, One of the greatest services to mankind on the internet. Keep geeking, my friends. So a big thanks again to Ismail Schonhorst for that great review. I'd also like to thank everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon. And their names are George Turcotte, Esther Sebastova, Carolyn Penny, Cody, a.k.a. Enigmatic Pariah, J.T. Howard, Seth Dickinson, R. Chris Four, Jesse Colton, Alex Brady, Joseph Colby, and Michael Flynn. Our current total is $178.64 per episode. And remember that if we reach $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of 2015. And if we reach $400 per episode, 
That'll guarantee that the show continues through June of 2016. So if you're looking forward to another year or more of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. So that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot geeks. And remember that if you'd like to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguysshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Andrew Johnson, who just made a very generous $25 contribution. So a big thanks again to all our supporters. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.